ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today, we're travelling back in time via the ocean floor. I'm Tegan Taylor and this is Occam's Razor, a soapbox for science. Please welcome our tour guide, Dr Indrani Mukherjee, who's been exploring the origins of life by looking at rocks. Well, have you ever wondered why are we here? Why do we share this planet with millions and millions of wonderful species? How did we come into being? Fascinatingly enough, millions and millions of years ago, two simple cells merged to form the complex cell, 34 trillion of which you are made of. Plants, other animals and some microbes are also made of this wonderful cell called the eukaryotic cell. Now, biologists have some idea as to how a complex cell formed from two simple ones, as in did two simple cells get together for a friendly catch-up or did one coerce the other to move in with them? So in scientific jargon terms, we're still speculating if two cells merged in an endosymbiotic relationship or was it phagocytosis? Sounds a bit scary. But as a geologist, I'm trying to find out why. Why such interactions occur on the first place. For that, I travel back in time. I look at the chemistry of rocks forming in ancient oceans to see if the chemical environment had any impact on biological evolution. I specifically look at the chemistry of a very shiny mineral, my favorite. It's called pyrite. And pyrite is found even today in modern oceans as well as in ancient oceans. I use a laser-based technique that allows me to measure micronutrients that are absorbed from the seawater into the structure of pyrite forming in certain rock types called black shales, micronutrients such as nickel, cobalt, selenium, molybdenum, zinc, cadmium, etc. And importantly, we have been able to demonstrate that the chemistry of pyrite is an excellent measure of micronutrient availability to primitive organisms in ancient oceans. So, so far, we have analyzed over 5,000 pyrite grains that has enabled me to construct a micronutrient trend. This trend gives us a very good idea about the micronutrient availability or scarcity to primitive organisms. Startling findings so far suggest that during the time the complex cell was being formed, oceans were actually witnessing a nutrient scarcity. Now you're going, wow, that probably was really stressful. It was, but I'm here to say that stress can sometimes work wonders, as it did back then. This scarcity, I believe, prompted organisms to substitute an unavailable micronutrient with an available one and fueled the need to merge, whether in a hostile or in a friendly way. And this triggered the evolution of complex multicell life. 
Let me give you an example. Think about COVID. Now we know that the pandemic affected businesses adversely and they incurred a lot of losses. But there were businesses that came up with creative solutions to minimize damage and in the process evolved to be more efficient than the pre-pandemic model. So symbiosis is as prevalent in our biosphere today as is predation. Think of yourself. Now, you may think of yourself as an individual, but you have more microbes in your body than the number of people in India and China. You have more microbes in your body than the number of cells you are made of. And for predation, try Googling amoeba eating bacteria. It will freak you out. So try not being freaked out. So life far from stalling during that stressful period actually took a major leap forward without which there would be nothing on earth today except bacteria. But how lucky are we that we share this beautiful planet of ours with millions of species. But what about life outside of earth? Now you will have all heard that NASA sent the Perseverance rover to Mars to look for signs of ancient life. How exciting would it be if we were to find signs of life on another planet? And you guessed it right, it's not that easy because the fossil record on Earth tells us that as we go further back in time, life gets smaller and smaller and therefore it gets harder to detect signs of life on ancient Earth. Therefore, my research uses kind of like a geoforensic tool using multi-analytical imaging. This toolkit essentially allows me to detect fingerprints of ancient life and avoid the red herring. So imagine an organism. So when the organism dies, a few things can happen to it. First, it um, decays and decomposes completely, in which case we have nothing to worry about. The second, it's preserved beautifully, in which case it's, it ends up being a fossil. The third is, before the organism actually decays, it is possible that it's completely replaced by another mineral, quite literally, cell by cell, and it's called exceptional preservation. And lucky for me, sometimes it is replaced by pyrite. Other minerals include apatite, calcite, silica, but I love pyrite. So I look at pyritized microfossils. Essentially what I'm trying to do is, as I just mentioned, you can form pyrite and it's very good at recording chemical conditions around it. So it's got no biological influence and you're forming those pyrites. But then on the same hand, you could be replacing a biological organism using pyrite. What's the difference? So we know minerals are ordered structures. However, is there a way to differentiate between mineralogical ordering versus biological organizations because biological organisms are also rather ordered but I would think they're more organized than ordered. So is there a way I can differentiate between what was the biological pyrite compared to non-biological pyrite? At this point I'm sure I've convinced you that I'm actually obsessed with the mineral pyrite and if I haven't then I've got one more example. So remember how I told you that the chemistry of pyrite is actually fantastic. It's quite a versatile mineral and it's so good at recording the chemical conditions around it when it's forming. 
So imagine the depths of the seafloor where my little beautiful pyrites are forming and capturing the micronutrient concentrations. Now at that side, if the seawater was influenced by any other fluid, and it can happen, especially if the fluids are loaded with metals like zinc, lead, copper, gold, silver, etc., the pyrites very faithfully records it. And the beauty of it is, as we move away from that side, the chemistry of pyrite changes systematically. Now, this information ends up being extremely valuable to the mining industry because they use it for mineral exploration. And you're probably thinking, mineral exploration, wouldn't that lead to more mining? Why are we mining? Aren't we striving for net zero? Do we really need more mines? Well, I'm here to say that if we are really serious about net zero, then there will be more mining and we have to get on with the idea of that, whether it's lithium for your batteries in your cars, whether it's raw materials for your solar panels or wind turbines, or even satellites that are responsible for measuring emissions accurately. We will need to mine if we're really serious about net zero. But sadly, not everyone is on board with this idea. And there is a very negative perception about geology in the wider public. And that has actually discouraged our younger generation from taking up geosciences at universities. And that's led to lesser enrollments at universities and universities either merging geology departments or culling them altogether. This, to me, is really worrying. And I ask you if you are worried. Because how can we save the planet if we don't know about it. So while I have your attention here, I very shamelessly and unapologetically request you to consider your role in the future of geosciences. Encourage your friend, your kid, your family member, or study it yourself. Don't you want to know more about this wonderful planet of ours? Now, whether it's tackling climate change, managing geohazards, finding signs of life on another planet, or just simply uncovering Earth's magnificent 4.56 billion years history. Geology has a huge role to play. Someone said, civilizations exist by geological consent, subject to change without notice. Thank you very much. That was Dr Indrani Mukherjee. She's a researcher and lecturer in earth sciences at the University of New South Wales. You heard Indrani speaking at our Occam's Razor live event at the Powerhouse Museum on Gadigal Land in Sydney. I'm Tegan Taylor, your Occam's Razor host, and I'll be bringing more rock star scientists to you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.